Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 12, Episode 19. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very happy to be talking with trained chef, cooking instructor, and award-winning author, Tammy Donro Inman. Tammy is an author and photographer of her new book, New England Desserts, Classic and Creative Recipes for All Seasons. This book won the New England Book of the Year Award as well. Tammy sharpened her knives testing recipes for Cook's Illustrated Magazine and the TV show America's Test Kitchen. Tammy is a former editor of Boston Magazine, and she's also written for Fine Cooking, Yankee, and Boston Globe. Her first cookbook, Winter Sweet, Seasonal Desserts to Warm the Home, received rare rave reviews from the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly. She lives outside Boston with her family, two high-maintenance cats, and a pair of well-worn roller skates. She's currently at work on her third cookbook. I want to say that this is a really great cookbook, and I really enjoy it quite a bit. Um, I've already baked a few things from it, least of which is the apple cider uh, uh, donut cake, which is really wonderful my family loved. I'm going to take you to this conversation now. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I am talking with Tammy Donro Inman, who is a trained chef, cooking instructor, and award-winning author and photographer of New England Desserts, Classic and Creative Recipes for All Seasons, which won the New England Book of the Year Award. Tammy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dean. I want to start by asking a question I ask a lot of people. You grew up in New England. Um, Can you talk about the food memories that you had um, being from New England and also maybe relatives or family members that kind of guided you and made foods that you remember from this time period? Yeah, so I was born in Maine, um, and I spent the first five years growing up in New Hampshire. Oh, wow. So, so you've been all over the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had this this home on this beautiful piece of land that had these big pine trees, and it was just gorgeous. And my mom had this garden, this small garden, and some of my earliest food memories are of me just playing outside, wandering through the garden and just like plucking the strawberries and the cherry tomatoes off the plants and just eating them, just playing and eating, just grazing. Um, And it just occurred to me actually that uh, this is probably why I love foraging in the forest so much is because I kind of grew up doing that. Um, I also remember canoeing um, with some family friends on this little pond and picking wild blueberries from from the edge. And it was just a kind of magical moment popping those berries into my mouth and they were so flavorful. Um, Like not your typical blueberry, like those really intense wild blueberries. Um, Sometimes when I when I taste one from the farmer's market, it takes me back to that that place. Uh, not all of my food memories were good, however. Um, oh, yeah? <laughs> my mom was kind of ahead of her time nutrition-wise in the 70s. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. And she um, had us go sugar-free for a couple of years. And it was just torture. You know, all the other kids with their ho-hos and ring-dings and me and my sister with our frozen banana pops (laughs) oh yeah no i know that my my mom got the book sugar blues when i was a kid and we went the same way yeah a lot of parents were like um doing that and it was kind of evil because like we went from like having all this saturated sugar then to not and it's like kind of like beating addiction 
Yeah, it is. You hear like the, um, the ice cream truck coming to your neighborhood, the music playing, and it's so depressing because all the other kids are running out and you're like stuck at home <laughs> with the doors locked. No, it wasn't that bad, but, um, I definitely remember, um, liver and powdered milk. Oh yeah. Awful. Awful. Did stuff. you ever have to eat Karab? Um, no. Did you? See, I like Karab, but yeah, we ate it a lot. Um, it's not as, if you want the real thing, it's not as good as the real thing, but that was a big thing during that time. Everybody's like anti-chocolate and you gotta eat Karab. So you had Karab, you know, drink and Karab this and Karab that. Oh, so kind of like a substitute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with that. Sounds like I didn't miss anything though. Yeah, nah, yeah. I mean, yeah, no. So, you know, as as well as being a food writer, you know, you have a background where you're um, an alumni of some fam famous and prestigious places. Um, you worked with Cooks Illustrated and America's Test Kitchen, which is just amazing to me. Can we talk about this time period a little bit? Absolutely. Um, this was about 20, 25 years ago. Um, it was a really interesting time to be working there because um, there were a lot of changes happening. Um, I was in culinary school at the time. So I was going to school, um, you know, part-time and, and also working part-time at the magazine, um, which was really a great opportunity for me because I really wanted to be a food writer, not so much of a restaurant chef. So I started working for the magazine and it was great to um, be in their test kitchen and learn how to test recipes and get to like research and write pieces for the magazine. And then they started um, filming for their very first season of America's Test Kitchen. So this was all completely new to them. Um, they were still figuring everything out. We, um, you know, as part-timers would you know, be trying to source props for um, some of the segments and making the food behind the scenes that they would bring onto the set. So it was just really cool to, you know, watch the whole production process, see how it all worked. Um, and then, you know, we would have un unexpected guests arrive on set sometimes. I remember um, one of my favorite stories is when we were filming, I think it was a cookie episode, because I remember having a sheet pan full of chocolate chip cookies, and I was running out the door of the test kitchen to bring them on set. And I almost ran right into somebody very tall who was blocking the doorway. And I looked up and it was Julia Child. Oh my she, God. She had shown up unannounced to congratulate K Chris Kimball. Um, on the show and I like nearly dropped the pan of cookies onto the floor when I realized it was her yeah I mean that would be like meeting God that's amazing <laughs> now you, you were doing this while you were doing your in your schooling did this give you kind of a leg up on your your uh your colleagues in school like because you were getting some advanced training while you're getting training that's pretty amazing right it is but you know what I found it to be a little bit jarring. The two environments were very different. Like at yeah. culinary school, it was all about creativity and learning the techniques um, and the science and then developing your instincts in the kitchen rather than like really following the recipe. They really didn't want you to rely on the recipe so much. They wanted you to sort of um, learn the techniques and really 
embody them. Yeah. At Cook's, it was all about the recipe, right? Because they're, you know how their magazine is set up. It's all about finding the best, you know, the best way to make something supposedly. Um, so it was all about the recipe itself and precision in the test kitchen. And so moving between the two environments, sometimes I would get confused and I'd be like, wait, am I following a recipe today or am I not following a recipe today? <laughs> you know? um, but both really taught me a lot. Um, to be a recipe developer, which is what I ended up becoming, a writer and a recipe developer, you really need to be both things, precise and creative. Um, so the trick is knowing when you don't need to be so precise about things and where you can flex that creative muscle and, and make changes and adjustments without, say, compromising flavor or texture or like the edibility of the whole dish. And that really comes from experience and just a lot of practice. I want to back up a little bit. Um, I'm curious, when, when did you discover that you really knew that food would be your future, either by writing or working as a, as a, as a chef? Hmm. Well, I can tell you, I can't pinpoint that, but I can tell you that, you know, I had a bit of a um, epiphany, I guess, during one of my jobs um, where I was like, I'm at a, I was working in marketing and I had a great boss and, you know, a nice job writing proposals. And I was like, okay, so is this what the rest of my life is going to be like? Or like, is this my dream? Because this is the path I'm now on. Um, and what I was spending all my time, my free time doing at home was trying to teach myself how to cook, how to be a better cook. Um, I wanted to read about food. I wanted to go out to eat. And I was quite obsessed with food. And I was like, um, I don't think I want to continue on this path. I think I want to really follow my passions and my creative ambition. And I had to make a decision. Was I going to go to culinary school and take this dump? Or was I going to play it safe and stay in this job? Um, and I decided to to take the leap and see where it took me. Your first cookbook is Winter Sweet, Seasonal Desserts to Warm the Home. This was published in 2013. Can you talk about this first book and what you were wanting the readers to take away from um, this cookbook? Yeah. Um, at the time, I was writing a food blog, and it was all about sort of seasonal cooking, as well as like cooking for kids, because I had two little kids at that time. Um and I noticed a lot of the books were coming out around the seasons. And um, one of the more overlooked seasons was winter. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's too bad. That's when I do most of my baking, you know, the produce in summer, of course, is, is so abundant, but it's also really hot. It's really humid. Um, I tend to do more pies and more, you know, crisps and sort of interesting pastries in the wintertime when I can just basically have the oven on all the time. So um, yeah, what I wanted the book to do was inspire people to look beyond, you know, the strawberries, the raspberries, the peaches and plums of the summertime um, when they were baking in the winter, that there are winter ingredients um, that are around and in season in various parts of the country that you can use to make amazing desserts. It doesn't have to always be those sort of gigantic strawberries that that 
are white in the middle, you know, <laughs> that aren't yeah. that sweet. Um, I wanted to challenge people to um, to use more apples, more pears, um, use citrus fruits, which, you know, are, you know, a winter, um, they tend to be a winter fruit um, coming out of Florida and California and Texas. Root vegetables um, are, you know, a, a great um, way to add moisture and a little bit of nutrition to your cakes. We love carrot cake, right? Most people really love carrot cake, but they don't necessarily think to put, you know, say a parsnip, right? Grated parsnips in their cake, which is equally good, if not better, um, or to add beets. Um, so, um, and, or to add, to use squash instead of pumpkin. So there are lots of things that you can do with winter ingredients. And then things like chocolate and cheese and spices that sort of have no season, um, but tend to work particularly particularly well in the winter months because they're sort of hardier um, and they go well with those winter ingredients. It's also like less expensive when you're buying um, ingredients that are, you know, in season at that time, you're going to spend less money on oranges in the winter than you will on strawberries. You have some really great recipes in the book. I, I'm going to specifically mention the apple cheddar turnovers, which I haven't made yet, but I really look forward to making because it sounds delicious. I'm also one of those people that loves the combination of apples and cheddar. And then uh, pear cristata, which just looks amazing. Do you have any favorites from this book, things that you start looking forward to making now that we're getting into the pumpkin and squash season and the apple season? Definitely. Yeah, those two you mentioned are great choices. Apple and cheddar are such like a um, New England combination, like having your apple pie with a slice of sharp cheddar. Um, it's, a, it's a great combination. But yes, I definitely have my own um, favorites. I, of course, love apple pie and anything that has apples in it, apple crisp, um, you know, apple cider donuts. Um, and um, one of my favorite pies is the um, chai spiced squash pie, which oh, is a yeah. little bit of a twist on your pumpkin pie. Um, some people don't know that you can just substitute in most winter squashes for pumpkin. Uh, because pumpkins don't um, keep all that long. Maybe you'll get a month before they start to lose their luster. Um, but the but the hard skin squashes like kabocha, um, butternut squash, um, Hubbard, even Hub the giant blue Hubbard squashes um, can be used to make just really sweet, nice pies. And using just a different combination of spices just kind of changes changes it up a little bit. So instead of the usual um, cinnamon and nutmeg, um, I used cardamom and allspice and ginger. And it's it's a really nice um, twist. I loved your usage of pears for this book. And I just always wonder, like, I don't feel like people really know what to do with pears most of the time. At least yeah. here in California, I feel like they usually get shoved on a cheese board or something. But that's about it. And I love seeing people utilize them because I love pears. They're wonderful. Do you think there's, do you have any ideas for people that want, that have pears and kind of want to find something to do with them? Oh yeah. I mean, I really feel like pears can be used like apples in most things. They are sweeter than apples. So you, you know, would probably want to reduce the sugar. Um, but yeah, any kind of crisp um, or crumble or pie, um, 
would would work equally well. And um, like you mentioned uh, for the pear crostata, um, I like to include cranberries or something tart to sort of balance out the sweetness a little bit, even raspberries. Um, it's a really nice combination and it gives a, a kind of pinkish color too. Um, I have um, an Asian pear sorbet. That's a really um, lovely, um, yes, a, a way to use. So Asian pears are kind of like, I think of them as like a cross between an apple and a pear <laughs> because yeah. they are, um, they have the texture of a pear, like the sort of gritty, you know, um, sweetness of a pear, but they're hard. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to figure out, you know, how I could turn an Asian pear into dessert. And I tried poaching them and I tried a bunch of different things. And finally, I ended up um, baking, slow baking them and then um, pureeing them with the, a cooking liquid that had like star anise and I forget what else it had in there, but other sort of Asian flavors and then pureeing it and turning it into a sorbet. And it was just absolutely delicious. Uh, and and vegan um so the i think the trick with pears is that it's really hard to time it so they're ripe when you want them to be ripe because usually when you buy them from the store or even the farmer's market they're hard yeah. <laughs> they're hard as a rock and it can take them seven to ten days to ripen um and it's like how do you how do you plan you know, to make a pear dessert, you have to basically wait until the pears are ripe and say, okay, I'm making dessert today. <laughs> yeah. Tammy, I want to talk to you about your new book that has come out last year and has already won awards, New England Desserts, Classic and Creative Recipes for All Seasons. What inspired you to write this book initially and uh, how did you pitch it to the publisher? Yeah, I knew I wanted to do a seasonal book that included all seasons, not just the winter. I had hoped to follow up the winter sweet book with a summer book. Uh, but when that didn't happen, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could write a book about all the seasons and how that relates to New England produce? Um, because I felt like there wasn't a lot out there that sort of focused on some specialty ingredients that we have in New England that other places maybe don't have, like cranberries, um, like maple, um, like black raspberries, you know, just Concord grapes. So I wanted to sort of um, use the farms of New England and the produce at the farmer's market as inspiration. And I wanted to capture the flavor of each season um, and some of the history of the region as well. And I feel like most of the desserts tend to be really simple fruit forward desserts um, or twists on old classics. Like there are a lot of desserts that were invented in this area like pumpkin pie, Boston cream pie, chocolate chip cookies. Um, but so many of our favorite desserts in New England are, are also driven by like native ingredients um, and other ingredients and cooking techniques that immigrants have brought to this country. So it's an interesting combination of history and, um, you know, innovation and what's happening now with a different mix of cultures and creativity. I mean, I think I, what I really loved as, as you're talking about this, what I really loved about the book is that it is so vegetable or, I mean, not vegetable, fruit 
and also um, things like maple forward because oftentimes I don't see that there's a lot of variety in the things. When, when I get a blueberry pie or a blueberry muffin, that's pretty much the gamut there with most people. And the maple syrup, is, as an example, is usually just on pancakes for most people. But you really use these uh, seasonal fruits like cherries, plums, rhubarb, blueberry, blackberries, and maple all really take center stage and use them in a variety of ways. Can we talk about that a little bit, uh, the different uh, food profiles for each season in New England? Yeah, there's definitely a cycle. And, um, you know, obviously it's the same every year. And it really does give like a special flavor to every season. So what I like to start um, as winter turns to spring, because that's when the maple syrup, uh, or I should say the maple sugaring season starts, right? As like, um, you know, the ground starts to thaw, um, the trees sort of wake up and they start, um, the maple sap starts to flow and then it gets collected and boiled down and you end up with your maple syrup, or if you continue boiling it down, it crystallizes into maple sugar. So um, at that time of year, there really isn't a lot growing yet. So you've got your maple syrup, you've got um, you know, your dairy and your eggs and you're just your weight and, and some grains like um, oats and barley, <laughs> buckwheat maybe, but there really hasn't been anything coming out of the ground quite yet, unless you've um, left your parsnips to overwinter and get very sweet and then you can dig those up. So really we're just waiting for um, the rhubarb and the strawberries to come up. So that's really when you know that um, summer is almost here when you start seeing the rhubarb and you start seeing the strawberries. Then as summer um, progresses, a little warmer, you get your raspberries, your black raspberries and your red raspberries, mulberries, blueberries, and then the stone fruits come out like peaches and plums and cherries. And it was really sad this year in New England because there was like a cold snap, um, a really deep, hard, freeze in February, apparently, that took out most of the um, the peaches, plums, and cherry harvests in New England. Um, so, I mean, it did not kill the trees, but it meant that there weren't any stone fruits, any local stone fruits this season, which was very difficult for the local farms because they rely on, on that income. Um, but anyways, uh, but typically you would see the stone fruits come out um, in July and August. And then you start to see blackberries in late summer and your melons like watermelon, honeydew, cantaloupe. You'll start to see some early apples and early pears, um, the summer varieties like Bartlett. Um, and then you start to transition into fall and you'll end up with more apples and pears, some Italian prune plums, conquered grapes, um, figs, although figs are not really uh, a New England ingredient. I did plant a fig tree in my yard. Oh. So I do get figs. <laughs> nice. There's a funny story about the fig tree, actually. Um, there is a beloved um, store that it no longer exists, but it was it called Russo's and it was an amazing place to get any kind of produce you could possibly imagine and some interesting plants as well. 
um, it's, it's the owner retired, so it no longer exists, but I, I had been shopping for plants and I impulse purchased this fig tree, knowing that A, it's not meant for this zone really, and B, um, I'm not a very good gardener. <laughs> so I ran into this Italian man, elderly Italian gentleman in line, and he said, um, oh, you know, I, I've, I've planted those and, and I, I, I bury them every year. And I thought what he meant was that he kills them every year. And I was like, oh yeah, me too. I'm not so good with the plants. And he's like, no, no, no. I mean, I physically bury them underground in the winter time so that they don't die. And I was like, oh, tell me more about this, you know? And so he would, he would um, basically, you know, in the fall, wrap it up in burlap, dig a, a shallow grave, <laughs> bend the trunk down um lay it underground and then put a board on top and cover it up with um with soil and then in the springtime he'd dig it up again pull it back you know pry it up pull it back and then it would be fine and I, i'll tell you i've done that for five years and it works and the tree is taller than me now and i have trouble actually like managing getting this tree back down into the ground every year so anyway I love that story. I, I love that because I mean, we, we don't often have good tips like that. And like, it's like people, the word of mouth stuff, I think has some of the best information you could find stuff on gardening. Yes. I was so grateful that he, um that he approached me because I never would have known. And I'm sure I would have killed it the first year. What are you doing with your abundance of figs you're getting? Cause I imagine you're getting quite a bit if it's as tall as you. Yeah, I mean, the last year I got a lot and and this year is shaping up to be quite a lot too, especially with all this rain. Um, but uh, yeah, fig newtons, baby. I make a lot of fig newtons. <laughs> and figs are really nice also in like um, combination with apples, like in a crisp or a cobbler type of situation to add a little extra sweetness. And then just eating them out of hand. I mean, they're just delicious with like a little piece of gorgonzola pressed in there maybe a little honey drizzled. Oh, so good. I I know um, we've talked about this online, um, your love of rhubarb and, and I love rhubarb as well. Um, and I, I grow it impossibly here because it really shouldn't grow in California. I have a lot of it and uh, I love it and I always have an abundance of it. Can you talk about rhubarb uh, and uh, what you like to do with it and some of the recipes in your book? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I can understand why um, why a lot of people are skeptical about rhubarb because it looks like celery, like pink yep. and green celery. <laughs> and like, why would you like look at it and automatically think dessert? But it cooks down so nice and soft and it has this tart wild flavor that's like really difficult to describe. But I guess if I had to describe it, I would call it like some kind of exotic lemony berry flavor. Um, a lot of people pair it with strawberries because like I said, they come out around the same time and the natural sweetness of the strawberries sort of help, you know, um, sweeten up the, the rhubarb. Um, but I think that rhubarb is delicious all on its own. I just love its natural flavor. Um, and I've used it um, in combination with strawberries in the book for strawberry rhubarb tarts, but also alone in like rhubarb ripple ice cream and rhubarb ginger crumb cake and a rhubarb oat crisp. It's just such 
um, a tasty and 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 really pretty um, looking uh, ingredient, especially when you have the really red uh, rhubarb, which I happen to grow a Canadian variety that's very deeply red. Um, so everything comes out like really pink and beautiful. Sometimes if you have just the green rhubarb, it's not as appetizing looking, although you can certainly add strawberries or raspberries or what have you to give it a little bit more color. I thought that the rhubarb uh, ginger uh, crumble, uh, no, not crumble, the rhubarb ginger uh, crumb cake was particularly genius. That that really is a really clever recipe with its use of rhubarb because you got those great, the, the kind of uh, sharp citrusy flavor of the rhubarb and then the ginger. That just is a really beautiful combination. Didn't you also do a scone in there as well? Did I? I'm Did you? I don't remember. <laughs> I like the way you, because... I like the way you the, the way you utilize it by uh, roasting it, and also oh, just I did use, a, yeah, I did a little mini pavlova, um, yeah, yeah. roasted rhubarb on it. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, that was really beautiful as well. I mean, is I you don't really see anybody writing rhubarb recipes like this, and it's really lovely to see somebody using this because it is an amazing, uh, I guess we'll call it a vegetable, whatever it is. Uh, and just like, it's just really wonderful when used well. And I just saw, I just really love the beauty, which what you did with it. Cause I mean, nobody else is writing that stuff with rhubarb. Usually it's always the knee jerk uh, strawberry rhubarb combo, which I kind of feel like is overdone a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, the rhubarb ginger crumb cake is something that I often make when I'm doing samples. Like if I'm doing a book signing at a farmer's market or something, and I want to entice people to come over, I try to make something with a little color. And it's something that like looks very um, intriguing to children in particular, the pinkness of it, um, and, and even adults. And um, people are always very surprised when they take a bite and they're like, oh, because, you know, I tell them, well, it's rhubarb. <laughs> they're like, oh, is that strawberry? No, that's rhubarb. They taste it, or maybe they're a little afraid to taste it. And I was like, you should try it. You know, it's really good. And they're, they're always impressed with the flavor. I think it's just the fact that it's something new and, and um, unfamiliar that makes people a little bit nervous. Can you talk about historically some of the flavor profiles of New England cooking that you utilize, uh, some of the things that you like um, about the New England cooking? Yeah, I mean, there's some things about New England that, you know, that are specific to New England, and then there's other things that overlap with other areas of the country. Um, so I use both of those things. But when I think New England, I first think of maple syrup. Um, the second thing I think of is corn. Corn is a Native American staple, and not just the sweet corn, but the cornmeal and the popcorn. Um, all of those things were used um, in Native cooking for thousands of years. Um, so I use a lot of cornmeal, um, or I should say a lot of the New England desserts used cornmeal because that's what was available um, for most of history until you know, settlement um, and the, the British colonists came over and brought wheat um, and as well as oats and, and other things. It was really corn, corn was it. Um, so that's an important ingredient and it shows up in, um, in a bunch of different recipes, including my cornmeal lime cookies um, in 
well, I call it cornmeal molasses pudding, but what it really is, is Indian pudding. A lot of people know, know cornmeal molasses pudding is Indian pudding, um, as well as um, there's another thing that I can't remember, but cornmeal does show up a lot. And I also have um, maple caramel corn, um, which is another delicious recipe. Um, other ingredients include cranberries and blueberries and black raspberries that have grown wild all around um, New England. The, some of them are, you know, that are cultivated now like cranberries and blueberries. Um, and nuts, hickory nuts, black walnuts, butternuts. We tend to use mostly, um, we call them English walnuts just because of the way that trade was. Um, the British already had their, their trade routes established. And so when they came here, they sort of had access to certain things like um, spices and um, black walnuts. Um, pumpkins and squash, another native ingredient. And the English words for those actually came from the Algonquin names. And what else? Oh, so there, you know, apples, right? Apples are very New England, but I was um, a little surprised to learn that apples are not a native ingredient. Apples are not originally from New England. They were brought here uh, by the British along with pears, rhubarb, quince, and some other things um, to put, to plant in their cottage gardens, like much like they had in where they were from, um, to make sure that they had what they wanted and needed um, to cook throughout the year. Um, so, but of course, apples has become quite a, quite an industry um, in New England. And so it is just as important now as, as corn and, and, um, all the other things we've talked about. Um, what else? Of course, the dairy industry in New England is important. Um, ice cream is everywhere. Ice cream is like a way of life in New England and that couldn't have happened without a dairy industry. And of course, access to ice, <laughs> which New England has in abundance um, and it would be cut and stored in ice houses um, throughout the whole year. Um, what else? Oh, and of course, you know, the way that the the trade was, the spice trade and, and the sugar trade particularly, you find a lot of molasses and rum in early Yankee baking, um, as well as spices like cinnamon, nutmeg, mace, allspice, ginger cloves, um, all of those spices that you think about for pumpkin pie um, and apple pie. I, there was something in the book that I was really tickled by, and I really wanted to be able to try it this Christmas and you know give it out. It's the uh, item Needhams. Can you talk about that and describe it to the listeners, please? Absolutely. So Needhams are uh, a candy. They're a specialty of Maine, and they're basically chocolate-covered coconut candies. So think about a Mounds bar, and now think about it in like a perfect square shape. Um, and what's interesting about them is that they have a secret ingredient, and that ingredient is mashed potatoes, <laughs> <laughs> which is not something you typically expect in your confection. Um, you can't taste the potato, and it's really just there as a binder. Um, but it was kind of an ingenious way um, to use potatoes, and potatoes are one of Maine's top crops. So, um, you know, I just thought it was really interesting that somebody thought to do that. And it's not as strange as it might sound. Potatoes, no. 
is like it's used in lots of things like cornstarch yeah. like like flour um just the idea i think it's the idea of putting mashed potatoes in your candy that seems strange but um but it's they're delicious they are so good i made them um and my teenage sons were and my husband were very skeptical and they all loved them um so the candies were actually invented by a confectioner at CV's Sweets in Auburn, Maine in 1870. Um, and then they were named after a popular preacher at the time who was George C. Needham. Um, and I half wonder if the reason that like that they perpetuated, besides the fact that they are really delicious, is that the name is sort of like a marketing tool like an accidental marketing tool like when you hear the word need them you're like oh i need i need to have those yep. candies i need them um so it, it was kind of brilliant in in all of the different angles i i just i i the thought of these tickled me and they look so good i can't wait to make them to give out as a christmas kind of gift they, be, they look just like perfect for that and i really urge anybody who is listening to get the cookbook and make these because I think you're going to be happy and your family will probably be very happy with it too. Absolutely. They're very, very popular. So I want to talk with you um, about so who some of your favorite food writers are and um, who the people are that you go to and you like to read. Yeah, I, I do love um, reading um, and reading about food and food memoirs are sort of a, a favorite genre of mine. Um, I really like Lori Colwin, who wrote Home Cooking and More Home Cooking. Um, she's a very relatable writer, um, very accessible, and um, she's a favorite of mine. I loved Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, like most people. Um, I didn't necessarily relate to it because I didn't have a lot of um, you know, restaurant kitchen experience, but that was part of why I loved it because it opened a window into like an industry that I didn't know much about. But for Lori, it's, it's more like I, I relate to her on like a fundamental level, <laughs> you know, like reading about her trying to, you know, eat well and entertain in her tiny apartment kitchens. Like I, I totally get that. And it's, it's just charming. Um, I also really loved um, all of Ruth Reichel's memoirs, um, I actually have all of these books here, Garlic and Sapphire, Tender, Tender at the Bone. Um, I, I think her writing is fantastic. I also thought Roxane, Roxane Gay's Hunger was very important to read. Crying in H Mart was great. And then I have three favorite books um, that I would recommend to people uh, if you like to read about food. One is Candy Freak by Steve Almond. He's a local writer here in Boston. Um, and he writes about like, I think the tagline is journey to the culinary underbelly of, of the chocolate. I can't, actually, I have it here. It is um, a journey through the chocolate underbelly of America, which to me, what could be better than that? Yeah. Um, homemade by Liz Hawk. And if you like wine, and even if you really don't care about wine, I thought Cork Dork by Bianca Bosker was great. And it really made me care about wine and <laughs> want to drink more wine. I want to ask you, Tammy, what's next for you? Uh, well, I am currently working on a follow-up book to New England Desserts, and it's about brunch in New England. Ooh. Um, 
Yeah. So all those delicious seasonal dishes that you can make like breakfast and lunch. So things like donuts, cinnamon rolls, pancakes and waffles, popovers. And unlike the dessert book, which is all sweet, the brunch book will have a savory side of it too. So quiches and hashes and pot pies and things like that. And some seafood in the mix. Um, oh, and delicious pitcher drinks, which can be made alcoholic or non-alcoholic. So very fun stuff. That sounds wonderful. Tammy, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. And I really can't recommend um, your, your cookbooks enough. We're going to have links in the bio so people can go online and buy them. And these are also in, in all better bookstores. So I want to recommend you get these. I think if you are serious about um, holiday baking, you're definitely want to, going to want to get um, the the um, New England Desserts book. It's got some great stuff and really, really wonderful uh, recipes that your family would really love. Tammy, thank you for being on the podcast. I hope we get to have you on again with your brunch book. So I'm looking forward to that. I would be happy to do that. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Tammy Donro Inman. You're going to want to get a copy of her new book, New England Desserts, Classic and Creative Recipes for All Seasons. This is a really wonderful book. And if you really want to create some magical things for your family this holiday season, it's an excellent book to get. We have links to it in the bio. Next week, I'm going to be talking with business owner Colleen Worthington, who owns Neater's Bakery and Cafe, which is a big uh, traditional bakery that is all over the place in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Um, so you're going to want to check out that interview next week with Colleen Worthington. Until then, I'll see you at the library. <laughs>